Welcome to the RSP cast, Film and Data. I'm Matt Lodman. Joining me every week is Adam Harstead. Always a pleasure to be able to have him on. Over at Football Guys, you can find his work. And, of course, you can find him on Twitter at Adam Harstead. Adam, thanks so much again. This is going to be a fun show. Yeah, it always is. Yeah, so we're, we're going to get – we're going to roll and talk a little bit about coaching. Um, you know, the first thing I want to hear is you were we were talking about some things to – some possible topics over the weeks. And one thing that you mentioned to me was your Marty Schottenheimer rant. So I'm interested in this because as someone who grew up a Marty Schottenheimer fan, I don't know whether I'm going to be like, I don't know whether how I'm going to feel about this at the end of it. So I'm kind of excited to hear what this is. So what is your Marty Schottenheimer rant? Yeah. So Marty Schottenheimer, I think was a really, really interesting coach. Um, and, People dislike him. There's two main reasons people dislike him. The more analytic heavy set dislikes him because he was a conservative coach. Um, they didn't really like his play calling. They didn't, you know, he wasn't aggressive enough on fourth downs. Um, the less analytically minded set doesn't like him because he was, I think it was like five and 13 in the playoffs. Like he just had an atrocious playoff record. Right. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I kind of waver in general between the analytic set and the non-analytic set on most issues. But here's one where I think both sets are just completely wrong for just completely different reasons. Um, and, and I would go so far as to say that Marty Schottenheimer is one of the best coaches of all time. And I would put him in the hall of fame. Um, and before I get into that and before I get into why everybody's wrong about him, I just want to like lay out the case for Marty Schottenheimer in the hall of fame. Um, whenever there's a statistic, whenever I come across a new statistic and I want to see if it's a good statistic or not, my, my first instinct is I pull up a leaderboard of that statistic. And if the leaderboard is just like wall-to-wall -wall superstars and Hall of Famers, this is probably a really good statistic. And if the, st if the leaderboard is just like random, you know, like Brock Heward and Jay Fiedler and just random dudes, like this is probably not a very good statistic. By that measure, the best simple statistic for measuring whatever you want to measure, like whatever measure of goodness there is, is wins above 500 for coaches. And I don't mean that's the best statistic for coaches. I mean, that's the best statistic for anyone. So here's the career list of coaches by wins above 500. Shula, Hall of Famer. Halas, Hall of Famer. Belichick, going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Paul Brown, Hall of Famer. Andy Reid, going to be a Hall of Famer. Curly Lambeau, Hall of Famer. Tom Landry, Hall of Famer. Marty Schottenheimer at eighth, John Madden, Hall of Famer, Tony Dungy, Hall of Famer, George Allen, Hall of Famer, Mike Tomlin, I think he's going to have another really interesting case, and he's, he's very similar to Schottenheimer in a lot of different ways. Sean Payton, again, is going to be a really interesting case. Bud Grant, Hall of Famer, Vince Lombardi, Hall of Famer, Joe Gibbs, Hall of Famer, Bill Cower, Hall of Famer, um, and then Mike McCarthy, we're 18 names deep, and we're finally getting to the first name on the list where, like... I don't, yeah. you know, probably uh, yeah, not. Yeah, no real, no real yeah. Hall of Fame case there. I don't know <laughs> who knows what the future is going to hold. But if if McCarthy retired today, I don't think he would get any traction whatsoever. Um, and then um, Steve Owen at nineteen, Hall of Famer John Harbaugh at twenty, I think is making a really interesting Hall of Fame case. Uh, George Seifert at twenty one, um, I think should also be in the Hall of Fame. Mike Holmgren, a lot of people would put him in the Hall of Fame. Pete Carroll, some people like he's going to have a real interesting Hall of Fame case. Yeah. And then Chuck Knoll, Ray Flaherty, and Bill Parcells, three more Hall of Famers. 
Um, Guy Chamberlain at 28, Hall of Famer. Hank Stram at 31, Bill Walsh at 32, Hall of Famer, Hall of Famer. Like, basically, all of the Hall of Famers, all of the Hall of Fame head coaches are in the top 30 here. And all of the people in the top 30 here are Hall of Fame head coaches, with maybe one exception in terms of Mike McCarthy and a couple edge cases. But it's it's just really remarkable how strongly that one single statistic correlates with our intuitions of who was a great coach and who wasn't a great coach. And again, it's not like Schottenheimer is just sneaking into the, the top 30 there. He's eighth. Yes. I mean, you look at that top 10, like the guys in the top 10 with him, they were not close call Hall of Famers. These were not guys where there was a serious and sustained debate as to you know their worthiness. These were all slam dunk Hall of Famers. Now, granted, Schottenheimer is the only guy in that list without a championship. Um, but a couple of those guys only have one. Dungey and Madden each only had one. Um, Andy Reid only has one, but I don't think anybody really debates whether he's going to get in. Right. Uh, George Allen at 11th did not have a championship. Bud Grant at 14th did not have a championship. But both of them made the Hall of Fame. Um, so not having a championship isn't necessarily a death knell. There are coaches with comparable resumes to Schottenheimer who um, – who are in the Hall of Fame without a championship. And then the thing that sticks out additionally, like he won so many games. The other thing that really sticks out to me with Marty Schottenheimer is he won everywhere. I mean, he he took over bad teams. He was famous for taking over mediocre to bad teams. And he never had like losing seasons. He he eight and eight was his floor. If you have Marty Schottenheimer, he did not have a losing season until um, so his first head coaching job was 1984, interim job with the Cleveland Browns. They were really bad. He took over, went 500 the rest of the way, because of course he did. He was Marty Schottenheimer. Didn't have his first losing season until 1998, when he went 7-9, and nine, and that was in like his 10th season with the Chiefs. One game, you know, like one extra win, and he's back at 500. Didn't have another one until 2003 with the Chargers. Uh, they went 4-12. and 12. That was a team that was so awful. One of their beat writers said when the schedule came out, he looked at the schedule to see who the worst team on it was, and it was the Chargers. <laughs> um, and then he didn't have another losing season after that until ever. 21 years in the league, two losing seasons, despite taking over a lot of bad teams. He was an amazing coach. Like, yeah. he did not have the championship success. But... His teams were always, always, always competitive. They were always punching above their weight class, which is partly why he didn't have the championship success because he took teams that probably shouldn't have been in the playoffs and he got them there. And he took teams that probably shouldn't have been a high seed and he got them high seeds. And then... Or he took teams that under- were low seeds and took them to the conference championship. Right, And right. often coming back in games where they were losing and showed the grit that you don't... That, that make... They had championship-level grit, but didn't have championship-level players. And that's the other thing, too, is is um, Marty Schottenheimer has a lot of losses in the playoffs that get capital letter treatment. Yes. You know, the drive, the fumble, things that were such huge long shots that people remember them to, to this day. There was the Lynn Elliott game um, in the playoffs with the Chiefs where Lynn Elliott I think he missed like four kicks and they lost by three points. Yeah. Like that's not really on Schottenheimer there. That's, that's just catching variance. What was the game against new England? San Diego had a lead. 
Tom Brady throws an yeah. inner throws. It's fourth down. Yep. They're already in desperation mode. Tom Brady um, throws a pass. And then rather than batting it down, his defensive back intercepts it, tries to run it back, fumbles it back to the Patriots. Patriots get new life, go down, score the touchdown to tie it. Um, he had a lot of bad luck in the playoffs. And the thing is, like, let's imagine just for a second that that all coaching performance in the playoffs was just a coin flip. Like it's pure 50, 50 chance. You know, we've had hundreds of coaches who get to the playoffs and they're compiling this resume. It's not surprising that you would see a resume like Marty Schottenheimer's purely from chance alone. Like it's, it's possible to flip a coin 13 times and get heads five times and tails eight times. That's not an unusual event. It's possible to get a resume like Bill Belichick's just, just, through sheer luck. And I'm not saying that Belichick was just lucky or that Schottenheimer didn't do anything to contribute to that playoff record, but people dramatically underrate. I mean, like Peyton Manning is another great example of this. He finished his career with a 500 playoff record. People are talking about, you know, he's a choker. Well, he had like, I think he has the playoff record for most consecutive games with a fourth quarter lead. And his defense kept choking him away. That's not really on Peyton Manning. You know, he he has the all-time record for fourth quarter um, touch, fourth quarter comebacks. Um, Tom Brady just recently passed him. Um, he had for the longest time, like he was, he had the best chances of anybody in history of completing like long shot comebacks where you're down by 14 points with like eight minutes left. Um, nobody completed those comebacks at a better rate than Peyton Manning. Um, not even Tom Brady, like nobody even came close. So he's obviously not a choker. Why is he 500 in the playoffs? Variance. It's his kickers are missing kicks and other kickers are making kicks. And there's a lot of luck involved and over large samples. And when you see enough players and enough coaches, it's not surprising that some people get bad luck. So that that's my thesis is, is Marty Schottenheimer was an amazing coach. Um, maybe not one of the top 10 of all time, definitely one of the top 20 coaches of all time. And we've got more than 20 coaches in the hall of fame. So in my book, easy hall of famer, I think his bad playoff record was a combination of his teams overachieving in the regular season, which seems weird to punish him for. And also just horrifically bad luck in the postseason, things that were really beyond his control. Um, and that given enough coaches that that bad luck is going to happen to someone. And it's a shame that it happened to Schottenheimer. Um, so I think the, the the casual fan underrates them because they think that the championships mean more than they actually do. You know, if Ernest Biner doesn't fumble the football heading into the end zone, and if Schottenheimer somehow manages to win the Super Bowl the next week, which I don't know, maybe it would have been like a 40% shot, um, then I don't think he's a radically different coach than than what he is, and yet that would completely change his legacy. Um, and then I think the nerds underrate guys like Schottenheimer and Tomlin um there's there's an old joke that you know there's a, a drunk in a parking lot underneath the lamppost it's late at night he's looking around everywhere looking around everywhere and somebody comes up and says hey are you looking for something can i help you and the guy says oh yeah you know i lost my car keys um i i need to find my car keys and the guy said oh okay i'll i'll help you look for them did you drop them here and the guy says no i dropped them way over there somewhere and the guy said well why are you looking here and the guy said well this is where the light is <laughs> and I think that a lot of times analytics is there are simple problems for analytics. What what's the optimal rate of going for fourth downs? That's a that's a much simpler problem for analytics. And so analytics is a lot more confident in the fact that guys are not going on fourth down enough, right? A harder thing to evaluate is like how well does this coach motivate his players and get them ready to play? You can't 
you know, like that's harder to attack with a regression analysis. That's harder to, there's no direct evidence there. You have to rely a lot more on indirect evidence. And analytics, um, especially for the last five to 10 years or so, I think has been very allergic to indirect evidence. Um, I think they're coming around to it more and more, which is good because direct is to. always better, but sometimes we just don't have the direct. And, yeah. and so I think that's really exciting that they're putting more weight on this indirect evidence. But for the longest time, you know, analytics was like, we're really confident on who's good at calling timeouts, at who's good on when to go for it on fourth down. We have no idea who's good at like motivating players or installing game plans or any of this stuff, but we know who's good at this. Now, in the grand scheme of things, calling timeouts, going for it on fourth downs, that's such a tiny part of a coach's job. If you're ranking all of the things that a coach does in order of importance, that's like 12th on the list. Right. We, this, so many of the greatest coaches in history have been really, really bad at in-game management, which should be strong, strong evidence that in-game management is just barely important. You know, it's only important at the very margins. If you can be one of the best coaches in history, despite being terrible at something, we can conclude that something's probably not very important, especially if every one of the best coaches in history was terrible at it. So analytics looks at a guy like Tomlin and they're like, well, the only thing we really know for sure how to evaluate, he's bad at. So we don't really like Tomlin that much. When in reality, he's so, so good at all of these other things that, that we, don't, we can't get direct evidence for. Um, we have to rely on indirect evidence. And, and Schottenheimer, Tomlin, John Fox for a while um, was another guy where for sure. you know, all the direct evidence says he's just not a good coach. But like, look how many of his coordinators keep getting hired for head coaching jobs. Like the dude knows how to assemble a staff. He knows how to delegate responsibility. His players like him and play hard for him. His teams win. He went to Super Bowls with two different franchises. I'm not comfortable saying John Fox is a bad coach. All the evidence to the contrary suggests, no, actually he was a really good coach. You know, by the end, I think the game had passed him by and it, it everybody the end comes sooner or later for everybody. Sure. I don't think Belichick has the edge that he once had, but um, I think evaluating coaches is so tricky because all the stuff that really matters, we can't measure. And all the stuff that we can measure doesn't really matter that much. I, I think, think that's why we get so many bad coach of the year winners too. I love this rant. This was, this was so well-crafted and just, uh, and such a good, a good example. And it kind of dovetails of what, um, Russ Landy and I were talking about yesterday on our Scout Talk podcast about about coaches because and it, and there's a great irony involved with the nerds because really the the nerds are trying to explain to you why these coaches aren't good strategic thinkers, um, but they're taking a very task oriented route to go about doing it without understanding what what really the true nature of strategic thinking is. I mean, like there, and Marty Schottenheimer, what's the part of this irony is that Marty Schottenheimer, the, what made him good is that he was a very task oriented coach in terms of the system that he put in. He had a, he was a very like, it was kind of a very um, basic system in terms of, it wasn't a very fancy offensive system that he had. It was kind of more like, we're going to run power. We're going to, you know, we're going to run plays that you see in high school, um, that you see old time football. We're going to do tried and true things that work. And we're going to just get players 
who fit that system and we're gonna and we're gonna find that that match and we're gonna just do the basic things really 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 well just on an NFL level you know it's almost like he was he was like the NFL equivalent to like the military academy coaches who have undermanned players but they run the they run the wishbone or the option because they know that they don't have the athletes to match up the the same number of athletes whereas you know i'm not making a one to one comparison that way but if you were to to kind of extrapolate that to the nfl you would say he's the closest thing to that saying we're going to run these basic plays we're not going to do a lot of like highly involved complex things all the time to make that happen now that's not always the case because he also had play you know you think of his strong run games but you look at a guy like bernie kozar who he gave a lot of latitude to and he allowed bernie kozar to throw the ball downfield and they were and they did attack downfield well and when he knew that he had players like a rivers or a kozar or a breeze there you know after a certain point he would loosen things up and be a little bit more strategic in his thinking and match the player you know, match the system around the player or make allowances for it. And this is one of the things that made him such a great coach is that he could balance the the task oriented. This is how we do it. So we lay the baseline and make sure everybody gets on board. And then as then you make that transition from being the task oriented guy to going, well, where are some of the exceptions to my my system that can transcend what I do? and make us a lot better and how do i let them do that because one of the problems that i was discussing with russ and that i was seeing with like the analysis about Tua tongue of is oh well they just got two good receivers for him he's not that really good of a quarterback and he's just throwing glance routes and rpos and and they're just doing what he did at alabama and it's not that big of a deal well it's kind of like saying that um, Drew Brees wasn't a really good quarterback because he finally found a good match in Sean Payton for what he does well. Or Josh Allen isn't very good until he had Brian Dable and Brian Dable just found good players around him. It's more complicated than that. Tua, as we were talking about yesterday, was we both had Tua ranked above Joe Burrow. I had Tua number one on my board, just very slightly above Burrow, which in the interpretation is it depends on the system which one you really want to match with what's best with the system. But in a vacuum, if you would presume that they're going to get matched to what they do best, I it, it's so close that I wouldn't argue either one of them for you unless there's a specific system fit that you're calling for. And, and if you put a gun to my head, then I would probably say Tua, but I'd be sweating bullets because it was that close. And I'd be, I'd be freaking out about the decision. But the point being is that with Schottenheimer, here he is, this very, um, you know, he's a strategic coach in a certain level, but where he it, he gets painted is as being a task-oriented guy. But the the people who are the most task-oriented in football analysis are the are oftentimes the the analytics folks that we see in our media space. Um, they're you know they tend their silos tend to be fairly you know, narrow with some of the things that they're looking at. I think you're a big exception to that in terms of how you look at things. Cause you, 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 like you say, you're not doing stuff like say like Dwayne, Dwayne McFarlane, who's doing more of a, 
a, a data oriented, you know, narrow window of, of usage, utilization and things like that. But you look at the broader perspective, but there's so many guys that are looking at a narrow window and it's very useful, but they're banging on a guy who's actually kind of one of them for being one of them. Um, and, and where, and, and then at the same time, what they're failing to recognize is the things that they actually want him to be. He is, they just don't recognize what that, what those characteristics are. Yeah. It's, it's also interesting too. I mean, I think Schottenheimer is really just a fascinating lens to view the NFL. Um, once you start thinking of things, you know, probabilistically, and you start thinking in terms of counterfactuals, he's just such an illustrative example of the fact that, like, you can be good and have a losing record in the playoffs. And it doesn't mean, you know, like, once you start looking at the role of random chance, and he's kind of like the entry point into that for me when, I, when I'm trying to get people to, to come over to my way of thinking that, that everything is entanglement and um, we can't really be certain of anything. And um, Schottenheimer is a good entry point. But it's funny because how his career ended in San Diego is he got into a power struggle with the general manager, A.J. Smith. And management looked at Schottenheimer and his playoff record. And they said, "This, I think this is a stable thing. I think that he actually is genuinely bad in the playoffs, and that will remain the case going forward. And they looked at A.J. Smith, and they looked at his drafting record, and he dramatically overperformed in the last couple drafts. And they said, I think this is a stable thing, too. I think A.J. Smith is going to continue drafting better players than average going forward. Um, and so they made that bet. They, they bet that Schottenheimer's underperformance was intrinsic to him and that A.J. Smith's overperformance was intrinsic to him, and they sided with Smith over Schottenheimer. Um, and this is a case where, like, if the analytics movement had been bigger, they would have just been screaming and shouting no because because performance in the playoffs like that, that's not a stable thing. That's random chance. I mean, yeah. you look at, like, Bill Cower was a playoff choker until he wasn't. Tony Dungy was a playoff choker until he wasn't, and it just comes and goes. Um, and also, overperformance in the draft, that's completely random. You look at teams who have drafted well over the last three drafts, and it's 50-50 whether they overperform or underperform in the next one. You look at teams that have underperformed in the last three drafts, and it's 50-50 whether they overperform yeah. or underperform. You know, scouting is is very efficient. Everybody is relatively competitive scouting-wise, and mostly if you have a couple good drafts in, in a row, you got lucky. Yeah, and, and, it's so about they, the play, and it's about the weight of impact with the player because I'll just interject this real quickly. You could argue that as many good players that A.J. Smith overperformed with, the two players who were the huge difference makers for those teams during the Schottenheimer-Smith era were Breeze and Tomlinson, and they were both drafted by the same guy, John Butler, who made an astute trade with the Atlanta Falcons to basically, Atlanta got gave up some picks to get Michael Vick, and those picks that they got got them Drew Breeze and LaDainian Tomlinson. Or at least breeze, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, and, and it's funny too that like the actual good picks that Smith did make because he had such poor interpersonal skills, he ran them all out of town. Vincent Jackson, um, you know, he pissed off Marcus McNeil, and he like he was not a really. I hesitate to say things. I don't know. He might be an awesome dude. He might be an amazing dude. He might give to charity, but His he does not seem like the sort awesome of dude. There, yeah. He's not the dude I would want as my boss. Yeah. Um, and there's there's evidence of him like going out of his way to screw over players to save you know like five thousand bucks against the cap and just being 
Pennywise and Pound Foolish, and then nobody wanted to play with them. And, um, you know, I talked about how earlier I briefly mentioned that Coach of the Year winners are really bad, but Executive of the Year winners are also really bad. It's funny how many guys, if you look at who wins Executive of the Year, it's like a 50-50 shot whether they're still employed with the same team. In well, who, well who judges them? Media, right? Media makes the yeah. votes, right? And how many of them have been executives, coaches, or managers um, of more than maybe like they managed some cub reporter, you know, back in the back in the seventies. Did they manage an editorial room? Did they manage like do, do they understand how to like recruit, hire, train, and and continue to develop people and strategically interact with clients or stakeholders or deal with upper management and be able to translate a vision down to like the day to day and run all that? Or, were, or are they just good at managing paragraphs and understanding how to manage information and put it together? Well, and it's, it's, this is another one where we're judging based off what we see and we only see like a tiny part of the job. Yeah. We see they picked these players. Those players wound up being good. They might be an ama- They must be an amazing executive. Um, and and like I said, that's that's largely random. If you if your players if you draft a bunch of good players in a row, you got lucky. Yeah. Period. Full stop. End of the day. Um, teams are not, like one team is not better at drafting, not in a meaningful sense, than another team. Um, now, if you stockpile draft picks, if you did like the John Harbaugh, Bill Belichick route, where they they just stockpiled so many picks that it became an inevitable that they'd get good players that's different and i think a case could even be made for like john elway i think we've seen now despite the amazing start to his career as an executive in denver i don't think he's that good of an executive you know he i it doesn't seem like he's listening to outside perspectives and he seems very confident in his own beliefs and not really opening himself up to to new ideas uh, but john elway also got Peyton Manning to go to the Denver Broncos. And I think that one move all on its own could outweigh like a huge amount of bad. Like he probably deserved executive of the year, even if his only contribution was getting Peyton Manning to sign there. Like they made a Super Bowl, they won another one. He probably deserved executive of the year for that. So it's, that's kind of the tension in the award too, is, is you want it to be like a backward looking award and award what actually happened. But that doesn't necessarily mean it needs to also be a forward-looking award. Like a bad executive can be executive of the year based on the strength of a single move. Yeah, that's, that's totally a great point with that. And I mean, you, I, I think that when we look at a, a coach like Schottenheimer, I mean, I love what you bring up because it's also something like, you know, look at Dan Marino. I mean, Dan Marino's career, are we going to, no, I don't think there's a soul on earth that would say Dan Marino isn't a Hall of Fame player. Um, but he never even won a Super Bowl, and certainly there, you know. But that's the that's the criteria that people judge, and so it's a you know it's a fantastic point with all of this, and and I and I would encourage you if you you know if you enjoyed this talk about the about coaching and want to get more into the nuts and bolts of it and hadn't listened to yesterday's podcast with Russ Landy and I, I would encourage you to do that as well. Um, but I'm I'm fascinated too, and just talking a little bit more about some players just from more of a dynasty perspective who are some players right now that that you you've been looking at that either they're reaffirming things that you thought about them or they're or you're starting to change your mind based on some of the things that 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 you've observed so i really like um you know i always say 
people ask, is this guy a buy? Is this guy a sell? Um, and my answer, I said before, it's always everybody's a buy, everybody's a sell. It just depends on the price. Uh, with the exception of Pat Mahomes. Pat Mahomes always a buy and hold. Uh, just because he's Pat Mahomes. I, I, other people can differ. I think it's more fun having him on my team. So I'm going to hold Pat Mahomes even if fair value comes along. Uh, so I wind up with a lot of, um, you know, like dented aluminum cans on my roster because they're half price. You know, the dented <laughs> ones are on sale. Uh, you know, I, Josh Jacobs was a guy where like, you know, he just wasn't a sexy name people were kind of over Jacobs, but the fundamentals, he was a first round draft pick. He was productive in his first couple years. He's shown talent. It's not like he's looked like a bad player. Um, everybody was kind of worried about these ancillary things like um, who was the running, was Amir White? Was that the guy they drafted? Um, you know, everybody thinks that they're going to bring in, or Kenyon Drake last year. Oh, this is finally the competition that's going to put the nail in Jacobs coffin. Uh, so I, I've gotten a lot of Jacobs at a discount. Um, I got him, actually, I got him, I was very, very high on him two years ago, and that did not wind up working out, but it, now it's coming way. back around. Yeah, I mean, two years ago, I he was my number two or number three, I think he was my number three dynasty running back after after Barkley and McCaffrey, and it's been a rough couple of years about, for that, but it's it's. I think he's in a really good position now. Um some other unsexy names. I think Ramondre Stevenson is more productive in the short term than his age and his cost uh, would warrant. I don't know if he's a good long-term answer. I don't know, but he's cheap enough that I would be interested in taking a shot. You know, if I could get him for like a very late first round pick, um, that would be an interesting bet to me. Um, for all the crap he received over the offseason, I love Christian Kirk at like his current costs in Dynasty. And the reason I love him at his current costs is because of all the crap he took over the offseason. You know, everybody's like, oh, Christian Kirk, like that's it's it, you know, it's like the new balance of of sneakers. Like <laughs> it's just it's square. It's like dad sneakers. Yeah. I don't want Christian Kirk, but uh, I'm looking at football guys rest of season projections and he's like wide receiver 15 rest of the year, and he's what 24 25 years old he just got 18 million dollar a year contract if i told you like if i if i covered up the name and told you hey there's a 24 25 year old guy who just got signed to a mega contract by a new team with a with looks like an exciting franchise young quarterback and he's you know like killing it like way exceeding expectations you'd think oh wow he's gonna cost a ton in dynasty but nope nobody wants him he's he's the dad shoes of of dynasty receivers um so i like i like a lot of guys like that guys where people just don't want them they're they're not fun they're not exciting um and the thing is you put up enough points and everybody starts to you start to become pretty exciting like josh yeah. jacobs all of a sudden he's looking a little bit more exciting than he did two two uh, months ago yeah. if christian kirk finishes the year as a top 15 fantasy wide receiver he's going to be a lot more exciting this offseason um, so those those are usually the guys I'm looking to buy. Guys who are short-term productive for one reason or another, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad reasons. The community's not that excited by them. They're not that into them. Um, and so I, I put out a lot of offers for guys like that and see if I could get them at a discount. Amon Ross St. Brown is a guy I got this last offseason um, on, on the same thing where, like, I get the hesitation. I, I totally get the hesitation. I think it's way overblown. Everybody was talking about how bad his competition was last year. Right. On a per-snap basis, Jalen Waddle's competition was worse. And nobody sure. said a peep about it. Nobody said a word. 
Yeah. The Miami Dolphins outside of Waddle had nothing, and Waddle got a zillion balls, and people are like, oh, it's because Waddle's a baller, right? The, the Lions outside of Amon Ra, they had a couple good players. They got hurt, and everybody's like, oh, he's just getting him because there's nobody else there. Uh, so I got Amon Ra. That was another guy. But now, all of a sudden, Amon Ra puts up a couple big games, and now all of a sudden, he's a sexy name. He's an exciting name. So I like to get like the off-brand guys before. You know, it's like buying... Um, buying vintage clothing and then waiting for the, them to come back into style. Yeah. I'll tell you, a guy who I think is a dented can right now that I'm willing to take a bet on for different reasons, even though it seems like a risky one, is Najee Harris. Because when everyone starts throwing around Trent Richardson, I know that's a guy I should be looking at. Because, A, people don't understand why Trent Richardson was bad um, most of the time and don't remember why he was good. Um, and... Another reason, too, when you look at Najee Harris is that I'm betting on the Steelers as an organization to fix their offensive line sooner than later. I think there's stability there. And the issue with me, yeah, for Najee, is totally offensive line related. To me, the the, the worst mistake I've made as a fantasy analyst this year was to go against my thought of of just saying, you know what, Najee Harris is probably going to be you know averaging less than you know three you know three yards per carry he's probably going to be at you know below a thousand yards or 1100 yards rushing he's probably not going to be used as well in the passing game because he has new guys i'm not ranking him in my top 15 running backs remotely not like not remotely instead i had him well inside my 12 top 15 and the shame to say probably on the bottom end of my top 10 um, preseason, even though my what's screaming at me is bad quarterback play, bad offensive line. How can you do this? Like the volume is, are they really going to give them that much volume? Or are they going to be able to do that? Um, and I'd ignored that nagging part to me. And I think now everyone's like, well, he's Trent Richardson because he went to Alabama because he had one good year and now he, he's, he hadn't in the same way that People were calling um, Jonathan Taylor Trent Richardson during the first half of his rookie year, which was also ridiculous. But Harris is a good running back. I still watch him play, and I still look at him and go, he's the same guy I remember seeing. Nothing's changed with his game. He still makes good decisions. He still runs hard. Um, his biggest flaws are pass protection, which they always were. Um, and he catches the ball extremely well, and they don't want to get him beat up in a wasted season this year. So they're going to use Jalen um, Warren more often right now. Why would you? Why would you just keep pounding Najee Harris into a brick wall, you know, 350, 400 times in a team that you know isn't? It's not going to be worth it to that team to do that. I think it's a, they're being smart with what they're doing with Warren. And I think that we'll see offensive line be the free agent or draft day priority. And within a season or two, we'll see a good year or three from Najee Harris as long as he stays healthy. And the only issue would be maybe if there's a coaching change, which I doubt there's going to be in Pittsburgh, or whether his foot injury is a big enough deal that that becomes a multi-year issue that costs that drops him off a cliff. But I had somebody yesterday ask me, should I trade um, Aaron Jones at twenty-seven at age twenty-seven 
for Najee Harris. I'm not on a winning team right now. I'm trying to rebuild a bit. Um, or should I trade? Um, should I trade Aaron Jones for David Montgomery and a and a late first and a late set and a late second round pick? And I'm thinking I lean towards Najee Harris because it was I understand the picks, but if you're going to give up a running back and you're trying to get running backs in return, you're probably not going to get the running back you want with the late first or late second round pick. You're probably going to have a better chance of of getting the the player you envision by getting the one that's on the board in Najee Harris right now with that team and everything that I'd explained. Yeah, I, I love the Najee poll just because he's he's it's very similar to Josh Jacobs, and I don't just mean because they're both from Alabama, yeah. um, but it's you know it's it's just at a different point in the cycle where like we know he's talented, he's got the pedigree, he has the history of production, he's in that down downward lull, but it's not like everything that we saw before is is gone. I saw um, like a month ago somebody tweeted like I don't know if Najee Harris is going to be in the top twenty dynasty running backs, and I said well anywhere he's not in the top twenty I will price enforce that for sure. Any anywhere he's available for less than top twenty running back prices I'm going to be buying him. Um, yeah, you mentioned the the Trent Richardson comps, and I see that all the time. I have a tweet where I do like here's the full Trent Richardson comp suite. Like anytime you have a young running back who's getting a ton of volume at just terrible efficiency. Yes, Trent Richardson is a comp. Here's the rest of that comp list. Because if we're going to be doing comps, let's, let's look at the fair. whole thing. Yes. Let's not just look at one guy. It's Trent Richardson. It's Le'Veon Bell. It's Ricky Williams. It's Marshawn Lynch. It's LaDainian Tomlinson. It's Emmett Smith. It's Walter Payton. It's Melvin Gordon. You know, the guys who get a ton of workload in their rookie year for terrible efficiency are superstars because the terrible efficiency doesn't mean anything. And the ton of workload means everything. If you're giving a guy that much workload as a rookie, this is the indirect evidence again. You know, we have the direct evidence that we're looking at the yards per carry and we're thinking, you know, if we, if we hold this up in a crystal ball and shake it hard enough, it's going to tell us the future. <laughs> and it doesn't, it's, it's bunk. It's, it's hokum. It's pseudoscience. You're, you're holding those, um, the static globes where you touch your fingers to it and the lightning arcs to your fingers <laughs> and it looks pretty and meaningful, but it's just a toy. It's a gimmick. Yeah. Um, but the workload, the indirect evidence, if a guy's getting 20 touches a game, the coaches are saying, we know the production's not there, but we think, we think our best shot of winning is to give this guy a ton of touches. We think that he helps our team. We think he's the best option we have. And that's meaningful because coaches are smart and they know their players a lot better than we do. And if they're telling you, if they're showing you with these precious snaps that this is the guy, this guy is the guy they think is going to unlock the offense, believe them, right? I don't care yeah. if Melvin Gordon has 3.2 yards per carry as a rookie. If he's getting 18 touches a game, coaches are telling you he's good. Just listen to him. Exactly. There's other factors involved that just aren't working out right now. And they're trying. They're hoping that they can just get enough out of that volume that works well to make a difference in the game. And he's their bet. And that player's their best difference maker. It makes total sense in that perspective. And I'm I'm here with Trey Lance. Like the 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 whole idea that well Trey Lance he's too young. He's not ready yet. He's all these things. It, it just smells like the whole Tua situation. Um, but even to uh, an exaggerated degree, like I would be buying Trey Lance shares right now um, in San Francisco because it's one one of two things going to happen. They're going to have to either they're either going to have to trade Trey Lance to someone who's going to covet him because they're going to have to stick with Garoppolo and feel like that that's 
that that he's proven enough to to operate within that system with all the stars that they have on offense right now, or more likely, they're going to say we've got to move on from Garoppolo finally at this point, and just and and work with Lance and he's got all these great talent around him and he's got another year to mature at least from studying on in the film room and he's going to have to play and work out some of the kinks um but also I know that I'm going to be able to get Lance cheaper you know like you said you, you're going to be able to price enforce this because it's only going to drop because people are going to say he's in his third year and he's barely played and how many third year quarterbacks have had this success when they've had you know had to wait this long and haven't done a lot I would I would take the chance on the talent in terms of what this guy can do um, it's going to be at a relatively low price with skilled players around him that are worthwhile and if Kyle Shanahan screws this up in terms of how um, outsiders are going to think of this it will be because he's so he's so um, focused on his system that he might inadvertently use Elijah Mitchell too much to the detriment of what people think he should have done with Christian McCaffrey or he's not involving the players he should as much and they and they lose games and now people are like what you know there's sentiment for him to get fired and he gets fired and they come in with somebody new they're probably going to find someone new who is at least going to give Lance a try you know now the opposite could be they say, well, I'm not attached to Lance at all, and they draft someone new and you're out. But I would still, you know, again, for what they paid for him, I think they want they want to make this work, and it's not just this experiment is over after a year and a half and an injury. Yeah, injuries are really – I love injuries in Dynasty. I mean, not, not that players are getting injured, sure. but I love the opportunities that injuries present. And I've been standing on the table screaming about this for uh, – like I have – I can post articles from like eight, 10 years ago that point out this pattern. So when a player suffers a serious injury, their value should drop. They are now worth less than they were before they suffered the serious injury. But the amount it should drop, depending on the injury, depending on the player's age, depending on a number of factors, maybe it's 20%, right? If a guy like, um, um, I don't know, give me a, an Joe example. Burrow, guy who had, Joe Burrow had Joe Burrow, sure. Yeah. Right, like, Joe Burrow probably didn't even drop 20%. Like maybe his value drops 10% because this ACL is not, it's an ACL. Um, it's not going to be a long-term thing. We're past the point where ACLs are are that serious of a long-term concern. Um, it's not like he was giving you that much advantage in the short term where you're like, oh, it, it kills me to be losing out on this production right now. Like when, when Cup gets hurt right now. Um, and it's not, he's so young that like you're, you're barely losing any, like such a small percent of his viable prime is now gone. Um, but depending on the player, depending on the injury, uh, maybe they lose 20, 30% of their value. Sometimes what will happen instead, and I don't, I've never been able to figure out exactly what triggers this, you know, that it tends to be more the dented aluminum cans get it more than like the, the blue chip stocks. Uh, sometimes the market will freak out and the value will just drop by like 50% or more. Um, and you'll see, like you look at ADP from one month to the next, you look at, trade values from one month to the next the value just falls through a floor and every time that happens every time i have never not seen it happen like two to three months after that the value rebounds to where it should have been in the first place that down like 20 percent um so i don't know what triggers this this massive overreaction and it doesn't happen all the time 
Um, some players, they get hurt and, you know, the community shrugs and, and just keeps moving on. You know, like David Johnson, when he first got hurt, he fell like five spots at ADP, which was, that was justified. That was probably the fair price. But I'm always on a lookout when a guy gets hurt. And I'll, I always um, send out some offers and I ask, hey, how are you feeling about this guy today? And if I can find somebody where they're doing that huge discount thing, the easiest profit you can make in Dynasty is just buy him immediately after the injury. And then three, four months later, you have optionality. You can, if you like the player, hold him. You got him at a discount. You got him cheap. You can write it out. That's great. If you're not really a fan of the player, you can sell him for a profit. It's, it's an easy, predictable profit. It hits every time. You can just trade away that player and get more than you paid for him in the first place. Um, so I like Lance. Um, all injured players, I'll probably be sending out some offers for Cup just to see. You know, I, I'm not really... He doesn't always necessarily fit with my teams, but I'm just kind of curious to see what the discount right now looks like. And if it's deep enough, yeah, absolutely. I'll get Cooper Cup. I'll get, you know, next person who tears their ACL, whatever. I love getting injured players. J.K. Dobbins would certainly have been that guy for me, especially after the complication where it really wasn't a re-injury. It was just that he had, um, he had some loose bodies in his knee that needed to be cleared out, that the, the leg wasn't moving right. Um, and he's, and you can tell he's very confident about the process with his recovery now to where that's going to be. And I think the team is too. He's a guy that I would, I would look at this offense and you can tell that they're, that, you know, you, he's clearly the best back on that team when he's healthy. And I think that, that, that he's a player with a lot of youth on his side that I would say you're going to get, if it works out, you'll at least get the three, four years out of him that could be worthwhile. And he was already a great example. If you had bought him immediately after his injury last year um, and then held him and sold him at the end of the year, he was worth like 50% more. It, like his value, he did nothing. He just sat on the sidelines and did nothing. And just for the cost of the roster spot for a season, it's it's an easy profit. You could probably get an extra first round pick out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I mean, and I, and I love this because we, again, as we've established, we look at things from you know, from different perspectives, oftentimes with how we, our style of managing, and you just heard, you know, the one point of view, you could have sold them and gotten, gotten value pretty much and turned it around right there. Or, you know, if you're more the, the, the grab the guy and hold on to him and use them, you know, you have not looked now that it may not work out for me on that front where it's already worked out for you right now. But, you know, again, it comes down to style and what you can afford to do and what you prefer, you know, so. A lot of times I wind up holding. I just, I like, you have the optionality. Like it, some people are like, well, I don't want to buy him at the discount because I don't really like him. And I think that's the wrong way of looking at it because you don't have to like him. You can sell him later. Yeah. Do you like the uh, value you, like you him, get, you know? That's right. If you do like him, that's great. I had a championship um, that was all like, post-injury all-stars in i think 2012 um where i got like adrian peterson and jamal charles after they both tore their acls and they just went nuts and i just steamrolled over the entire league um because i bought them low and i held them um there's times where i bought a guy low and i held him and i'm like oh for sure this is gonna come around and it never did percy harvin i got burned on a couple times sure. um but the thing is like you're not Nothing in Dynasty is permanent. You've never locked yourself into anything. Yeah. You can change your mind later, right? It, it, I like to manage my teams just to preserve optionality. I want to give myself enough options later on so that if I change my mind, I can change my team. 
Yeah, that's awesome. And listen, this has been an awesome show. It's a, you know, it's always a pleasure to be able to to talk with Adam and to hear his point of views about a variety of aspects of the game. Um, if you're interested in reading his work, I, I would urge you to go over to Football Guys and, and check out his work. You can just go to the search bar and just type in Adam Harstead. That's the easiest way to do it, if, if you ask me. You can just do the last name, actually. It's even easier. Save yourself a couple keystrokes. That's right. Just H-A-R, and it, it pops up all my articles. See, there you go. And then you get you get the richness that is uh, of the mind that is Adam Harstead. And you can find me at mattwaldmanrsp.com. You can also find me at Football Guys. Um, and you can do the same thing. Well, not H-A-R, but, you know, W-A-L-D, that'll work. Um, and you can find my work there. And we will be back um, probably in a couple of weeks, um, knowing that now I think I finally realize that Thanksgiving is indeed next week. Um, so, yeah, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. And for, um, you know, at that point, I'll, we'll wish you a happy early Thanksgiving and enjoy the festivities and see you soon.